Welcome to the DGR Podcast. I'm your host, David Gray. Hello everyone, David here. Welcome back to the DGR Podcast. I hope you're all doing well. This is episode number 42. I'm going to do a solo podcast today. I'm going to answer maybe three or four of your the listeners questions so yeah we've been doing i've been doing a couple of solo podcasts lately and then actually no sorry just the last one our us tour podcast before that was grant and before that was alina so um so actually it's more mixed up than i i thought but we'll hopefully be back to like a mix of guests and solos and stuff from next week on so stay tuned for that it's a little bit of a wet morning or quite a wet morning here in Waterford, Ireland, uh, what better time to do a podcast? So, but in fairness, we've had a good few, we've had a good like couple of weeks weather or a decent couple of weeks weather since we got back from the States. And I actually, we lit our fire for the first night last night. So my dad swears that, no, uh, swears might not be the right word, but like, I think the first, I think the first of November, he has a pact where he won't light the fire before then. But he'd be like sitting in the room freezing, but he's like first of November. Um, so I disappointed him last night where I don't live, I don't live with him. I live with Kira, but I disappointed him. I think last night where I lit the fire for the first time. Um, not even the end of September. So I've gone against his rules on that, but what can you do? It's been a little bit cold over the last few days. I definitely, definitely noticed that, noticed it, uh, noticed a dip in temperature. So some of the questions that I'm going to, answer apart from talking about the weather is a question about cranial and neck issues and kind of dental integration um athletes and snc athletes is is it is it possible for them to make it to the top level without taking their snc seriously try and answer that one um a question on rpe in rehab so rate of perceived exertion a uh, question around that and if I use it and also around like beginners using it. Um, and then a question around like, what's your biggest strength and biggest weakness business wise? So those are the questions. I have another page of them, but I probably won't get to them. So we will see. So where would we start? We will start with the neck, I think, because that's the first one I have written down. So how would you clean up cranial slash neck issues? without pri dental integration so for people who are not in the no pri is posture restoration institute um dental integration means they so pri look at like again go back and listen to my episode with alina but pri look a lot of at like they break they break their body into a few parts not like to isolate them just to help you understand them so they look at the pelvis they look at the thorax um they look at the neck and the cranium uh and they look at the feet so like most systems or whatever right but they have they place a big value or maybe the, like the most value on the cranium and the neck and the teeth are a big part of that as well so i don't want to speak out of turn here like i'm not speaking for them i'm actually gonna maybe go against what they say a little bit but like it's it's the importance of teeth contact and feet contact as well because like They'll talk about how your molars touching off each other. I think I'm right in saying this is the same is is similar to your heels like touching off the floor. So that gives your brain a real sense of where it is in space, where your body is in space, and all that stuff. So all of that kind of is to say, 
for a lot of people who they have their like patterns that people struggle to get out of. They're like stuck in a certain position. They're biased over towards their right side. They're very, very extended, all this stuff. And it, it, it can't seem to change or at least it can't seem to, to stick. So you can get changes and people just revert back all of the time and they're not, not getting where they want to be. They have, um, they start to look at teeth a lot more seriously and the eyes a lot more seriously then. So they might get dental integration. This person has asked, like they might get a dentist involved. Um, they might get a mouthpiece to help, to help that, uh, a cleaner contact or to help you get contact in a certain area. And then they might pair that with like breathing drills and stuff like that. So actually you have a, it's basically giving you an ability to sense things in a different way. So now you can get your expansion in different places, right? Um, so what what would you clean up or how would you clean up cranial neck issues without PRI dental integration? Firstly, I think it's a I think it's a not necessarily a great way of answering asking that question because you're it kind of leads you to presume that it's a good it's a good question but it kind of leads you to the way you read it the way I read it at least is like how would you clean up cranial and neck issues without PRI dental integration? Kind of sounds to me like okay. Is PRI dental integration one of the only ways or the best way to clean up neck issues? I I would I would rephrase that a little bit and say like, how would you clean up cranial and neck issues? So don't we shouldn't just presume that people need to get their teeth sorted out and go to a dentist and all of that stuff. And that's one of the issues I have with PRI because what I've seen is they'll teach some breathing exercises. And I I don't want to group all PRI together. I've just seen it from some practitioners who are quite high up there, including a couple of their faculty. And I've had their clients come to me after they've they've done some work with them. And this is what I've observed, right? I don't mean this to be critical. It's just what I have observed, which is they've tried like three, two, three, four, five sessions sometimes. And the exercises that they've given them like haven't worked well enough or haven't worked. They haven't got their desired results, which is fair enough. It happens to all of us. We can't fix every client and blah, blah, blah. But what then they'll just often presume, okay, these exercises aren't working for you. So it must be something deeper going on. It must be a teeth issue or a noise issue. And now you're going down this big rabbit hole. And honestly, for some people, it it might be that. It might be that. I'm probably one of those people, even though I've cleaned up a ton of stuff and I'm moving towards get a really good place without that. But that doesn't mean that that might not have accelerated it for me. So that seems to me that that is the presumption with a lot of PRI people. Okay, these few techniques the, over these few sessions hasn't worked. So instead of thinking, okay, I might be the problem um, what, what technique I'm giving you or how I'm coaching it might be the issue. Actually, it's an issue that you can't sense something well enough because your teeth and your eyes. And I think people are, a lot of PRI people are, are way too quick to jump to that. And in fairness, they might argue different, w- differently with me. And I don't want to like label it like that. So I'm trying to be careful here, but that is what I have observed a lot of the time. And again, I'm not saying it, it isn't valuable. I think it's very valuable to have that point of view and be able to understand that stuff deeply. It's obviously incredibly important. But here, here's what I've seen. When I ask people to kind of show me the techniques that they have done, 
along the way to being told, okay, this, these aren't going to work for you. You need teeth and eye stuff. Then they show me, actually, even before they show me, I'm like, okay, just, just show me how you're, you are coached to do your breathing and show me your breathing. So lie down on your back or your side or whatever. Show me the inhale that you've been doing during these techniques. Show me the exhale that you've been doing dur- during these techniques. And it's a mess. It's a, it's a, it's a complete mess. I, I, it, it's so obvious to me, at least, why that, that wouldn't have helped them because they're just using their neck. They've, they've been pushed into a technique that is like, okay, this is where you should start. This is the technique you should use to help this person. But they haven't been coached to actually breathe really well. So for me, that's where we start in upper body basics. I have the next section there in that, in that program for a reason and i say in the video start here if if you have a tight shoulder elbow rib cage but you also have a tight neck clean up the neck first go to that section first because i also appreciate like pri and they help me understand this how important it is to have a neck that's chilled out and that can move that has its um that has its bit of lordosis and can rotate and laterally flex they help me understand that and I think it's such an important thought process because if you see people with issues any in their, anywhere in their body, but they're always pulling at their neck because their neck is always really tight, a tight neck will get in the way of almost everything else. So you have to clean that up first. Cleaning that up first to me means you have to almost like obliterate as much neck tension and teach people how to breathe in that in, in a really, in a really, really, really good way where they're, they're, they're just not going to be using their neck to pull air in. So what that means to me is setting them up in the best position possible. Okay, so that might be a sideline. The pillow needs to be in the right place. They need to have their eyes looking forward, not looking down. Um, their sternum shouldn't be dropped or compressed down. They shouldn't be extended. They shouldn't be over-tucked. That's the one issue I see a lot, of, like very much over-tucking of the pelvis. And straight away that pulls the sternum down and straight away the neck is getting pulled on. So that's what I see there. And then with regards to the inhale, it needs to be, like I say, in upper body basics, that first, it's like a five minute video where I walk you through the soft, how to get a clean inhale and a clean exhale. It needs to be the softest, not the softest, but the smoothest inhale that you can do. The air needs to feel like it's falling in through your nose uh, rather than you're trying to pull it in. So it's not a, I'm pulling air into my body. The air is entering into my body effectively. And then the air isn't being pushed out or I'm, or I'm not pushing air out. The air is leaving my body. So that is the first step for me to cleaning up neck issues and tightness and cranium and all that stuff is, is teaching people how to do that. Don't worry about the technique that you're trying to do. If you're giving people 90-90s and adductor pullbacks and reaches and all of this stuff, then I can guarantee if you're getting getting them to do a reach and they have a tight neck and they can't inhale and exhale smoothly, then I guarantee you to reach. If you feel their pec, if you feel their, their neck, if you look at their their clavicle, all the tissues around there will be doing the reach. It's not, not a chance in hell they're getting a clean protraction of the scap, not a chance in hell they're getting serratus to do that for them. What they're doing to open up the back, quote unquote, which you're not even doing, is they're closing the front. They're squeezing the front of their body and their neck to pull, pull their hands forward into a reach position. So I coach also in the member side. I'm not, I don't want 
this isn't like a sales pitch for upper body basics or the member site. Most people are listening already have them already, but the video in the member site is, is Netflix and chill. And that coaches the breathing part, then the reach part, and then some movement of the neck. And none of them are done with any tension whatsoever. So we're trying to teach people how to let go of the tension in the neck and then actually coach a clean inhale. So what I would say to clean up neck issues, number one, without worrying about that stuff. And that doesn't mean you still can't go to the dentist stuff and the eye stuff in future, but do not send people there or do not presume your client needs that until you have actually done a good job first. That is so important. Don't just say these techniques didn't work. Off you go. It must be your issue with your eyes or your teeth. No, you first presume that you haven't coached them well enough and you haven't chosen the right technique, and you're actually going down the wrong path with them rather than presuming that's the issue first. So number one, number one, set them up in the right position. That needs to have the uh, the right, uh, like enough lordosis in the neck. They need to be relaxed on the floor, probably on the floor. So that could be side-lying or supine. I probably wouldn't put a neck person into pro- a prone position straight away uh, where they're like reaching through the floor because they're like that reach. It's too much of an active reach. They're going to use their pecs, their all their neck to try and act, use that reach. So you need to just te- get them side-lying or supine, I would say. Maintain the lordosis, have their eyes looking kind of forward, not down, not up. Teach, coach a really good inhale, coach a really good exhale. Smooth is the word I would use there. You may need to put their hands like on their upper chest or on their clavicles where they just rest their hands there and they feel how soft them tissues get and stay as, um, as we inhale and as we exhale. I've gone through all this with a client actually, Ingville, um, who I'll mention who had, who had kind of quite a flat thoracic spine and then, um, her neck was quite, uh, her neck, she kind of just lost her curvature through her spine and her neck. And we just, we just went through this and she had a hamstring tendinopathy. And now all the, like the, the natural curves in her spine have restored and her neck tension is pretty much gone. And you can visibly see a difference in tone between her neck now and her neck back then. So now look, she has worked really, really hard and like trained and got really strong and all that stuff in the meantime. But the first time I saw her, um, me and Alice saw her, um, after Alice had done a session with her, I think. Um, and we just looked at, we just looked at the neck and we were both in agreement. Like we need to clean this up first. So not that you can't do other stuff along the way. Of course you can, but for most people, I think with neck and cranial issues, do whatever you can to coach the best inhale and exhale possible and pause. Keep the least amount of tension in their body possible. Clean up the pelvis. Clean up the rib cage. After you've done all that, if you are confident you've coached this really well and they have done it well, even just because you've coached it doesn't mean they're doing it well. Then, then you, and, and it's still not working. Then you might start to think about it. The other thing I would say is, are they walking outside? I've spoken about this so many times. Are they actually going for walks in nature? If they're not going for walks in nature, do that. Get them to do that. Pair that with some of your neck exercise, your neck, your breathing, your neck relaxation. Then, the, uh, teach them a gentle, the most relaxed reach you can do. Maybe teach them some rolling around on the floor where they're actually getting their body to move. 
um, and their neck is is getting left behind, or they can lead with the head where their head is moving and their body is getting left behind. These type of movements. So get the get the body, the ribs moving under the neck. Get the neck and the head moving on top of the body. Teach a good inhale and exhale. Get them to walk in nature where they're actually walking and they're swinging their arms. Teach them arm swings and get them expansion back in the in in the places that they need it. Be clear. Are they missing internal rotation or external rotation? Are they are they is their chest compressed? Is their back compressed? Are they both compressed? Are they, is it their sides that are compressed? This will dictate what position you put them in where you want the expansion to go and don't just presume that the exit, the position will do it for you. You need to coach the inhale and the exhale. So that's what I would say. And only if someone has done all of those things and done it really well, and it's still not changing, then, then my next thought would be you need more time and you need like, we need to tweak things. And then after a while, if it's not changing at all, then I might start to think, okay, there's something else going on here. Um, so so those are the things that I would say. And then the dental integration and stuff, it's not that people don't need it. That's not what I'm saying at all. It's just that people are thrown into that stuff way too quick because of the incompetencies of the coach sometimes or of the therapist. They're presuming that they're so good and the techniques are just like, there's the algorithm. These are the techniques that should work. They haven't worked. That means they need eyes and teeth work. No. It means you most of the time for me and most of the clients that I've seen that have come from that, it means they haven't done that stuff well enough and they have, they're, they're not actually getting out in, out in nature. They haven't been taught to actually breathe well. It's just like, okay, exhale as much as you can out, inhale. That is not good enough for someone that already uses their neck to do all the breathing for them. So that's what I would say there. Get the arms moving. Um, and teach them if it's the back you're trying to open up. You're not trying to like create a ton of compression at the front, at the sternum for a neck person. You're trying to keep the back and the front quite open, but the position will help it go. Maybe the air and the expansion go into the back more. Um, so that, that's, that's what I would say there. Um, okay. What's next? We go to this one. What is your biggest strength and biggest weakness business wise? If. I don't, I don't really like, not that I don't like answering these questions, but uh, hang on, just take a little sip of water. Clear the palate, if that's, if that's what you say. Um, I don't think so. That would be a lemon sorbet. Hang on, I just pick up my pen. I don't, I, I don't, I don't love talking about my biggest strength and my biggest weakness because that's like, it's kind of a narcissistic thing to say, my biggest strength is this. My biggest weakness is this. I'll, I will give you the same answer for both. And bear in mind, depending on the day you ask me this question, it could be different. I would say procrastination is my biggest weakness. And also, funnily enough, kind of ha- has been one of my biggest strengths. And I'll explain that because that sounds, that sounds weird. But if you think, not if you think if you so all the way through school and stuff like that, I never studied for anything. I was like, I know everyone says that, but I didn't. And I had it. I had a way of like cramming for tests and stuff like that and just getting away with it. I, it was like I had an ability to hit 40 percent was the pass mark. I would come out of that test with 41 percent. 
Um, or like if I needed 60, I would come out of there with 61, 60, 62%, something like that. I just had an ability to just do enough. And that is a good skill. And actually, I know a lot of like friends and stuff that we were in school and college with, and they would be studying really hard. They, we could have a pop quiz 20 minutes, half an hour before the test. And they would know all the answers and I wouldn't. And I'd hear them saying the, the, the answers. And then we, that question would come up in the, in the test and we'd come out and we'd be talking about it as you do. And I would have got the question right and they would have got the question wrong. Now that doesn't mean I retained that information forever, but I could like kind of perform under pressure in, in, in a lot of instances. So when, when I really had to, I was able to perform. This led me to, this led to like an overconfidence and probably like just an arrogance to like, I'll figure it out on the day. I'll be fine. I'll figure it out and it will work out. And that is a good skill to have because I've used that now in business with like presentations, not like the recent workshops. I was very prepared for them, but like other webinars I've done presentations where lots of presentations over COVID where like I did my, I finished my last slide five minutes before the presentation hadn't, didn't look through it. And then it was just like winging it on the day. And they, the pres- them presentations were not nearly as good as they could have been, but they were still like good enough to get me by. That is, I can't stress enough how stupid of an attitude that is. So the, the, the ability to like wing it on the day and kind of perform under pressure, if you want to put it that way, is what led me to just procrastinate more because I knew that I, I, I'll be okay here. It's the stupidest thing in history. And if someone was to say that to me now, I would say, great but like you're just leaving yourself short it's the stupidest thing in history so it's it's led me to an an attitude of like procrastination where i'll figure it out i'll do it the day before i won't work on the like and that also robs me of you know like i could have a lot more courses and things available now but the reason the workshops worked is because I set a date and I sold the tickets and it's like, okay, on this date, I'm going to be presenting and it's two days and I'm going to have to go through all of that stuff. Now, I honestly feel like I could do them workshops without needing a presentation or anything like that. I could rock up, um, but it's just, it's just a stupid thing. So my biggest strength is probably like the ability to do it on the day. I'm not, I don't get super nervous. I get energized by like, oh shit, okay, I have to make sure I, I do this well now today. So I get energized by that. Um, I don't get crippled with fear necessarily, but my big, but that leads to my biggest weaknesses, which is, which is procrastination. And I would say that's a lot of people's biggest weakness. If they were being honest with themselves, it's just like they keep putting it off. You would be better off say it actually just saying to yourself, I'm not going to do this because you're being honest with yourself instead of saying, I'll start tomorrow. I'll start the next day. I'll start the next day. You're just lying to yourself all of the time. So that's what I would say. I actually read a good quote from. The Daily Stoic, um, Marcus Aurelius, and uh, what's his name? Ryan Holiday. I like Ryan Holiday. It's kind of like a meditation. His podcast, The Daily Stoic. I like it. It's quite good. It helps me relax when I go for a walk. And actually, I didn't like the Stoic stuff that much when Tim Ferriss and people were really pushing it for a while. But I really like Ryan Holiday because actually, maybe for the reason, the exact, the reason what I just, that I just said was, is, He's not a procrastinator. He's written like, I don't know, eight books or something like that. He's prolific. He releases a book every year. To me, that's like, 
unfathomable, unfathomable almost. Um, so he's very prolific and he doesn't procrastinate at all. So procrastination is one of my, it's one of my, is my probably my biggest weakness. Um, so the quote was, it's better to be a fighter than a fencer. A fencer has to put on armor and pick up a weapon. A fighter just has to close their fist. So that, that was quite interesting to me. Like I felt like, I felt like a mix of both over the years where I felt like, okay, I just have to like rock up and do this, which would be like a fighter. But actually, if I was being honest with myself, I just had to, I just, I was like cramming the night before and trying to get all this into 12 hours. It's the stupidest thing ever. I'd rather be a fighter who just has to close their fists, which means they've trained consistently for years and they've done, they've done the work all of the time going forward. And then all they need to do is just close their fists. It's, I suppose it's in their body and in their mind already rather than offensers. It's just like, okay, I need to prepare for this, te- this fight right now before I can actually fight. So, um, I hope that makes sense. Same goes for athletes. To be honest, if you, if you look at some of the most frustrating athletes to work with or clients to work with are, okay, I won't do anything. I have an injury, a niggle that's bugging me all year okay now the week of my big game or in the dressing room before my big game i'm trying to do my glute activation and foam roll so that this injury or this niggle feels good enough for me to actually play in this game that is the most frustrating and stupid thing and i've done that in the past in fairness to myself i've done that in the past where i'm trying i'm trying to get myself right for the game but also i've spent a year trying to get it right as well it's just that it wasn't right and i'm still trying to get it right on the day but for for some athletes it's just like they will not do anything until they're left with no choice but to do something and that is very very frustrating so uh bit of a weird question but um procrastination i need to fix that um probably a lot of people do as well to be fair um okay do you think it's possible for an athlete to make it to the top level without taking their snc seriously in uh, for gaa in particular so gaa is gaelic football and hurling um in ireland and then i'll talk about some other sports as well maybe so I do I think it's possible for an athlete to make it to the top level without taking their SNC seriously in GA in particular. Absolutely, of course it is. There's examples all over the world in all different sports of people who just athletes who just aren't interested in doing SNC. Um, even when they're doing like SNC work, they're just faking it. They're pretending to do something. Um in in the gym. I've worked with athletes that have done that. And they still are like the best player on the team and stuff like that. So yes, it's definitely possible in the GA in Gaelic football and hurling. I think it's quite difficult now to get to the top level without taking your SNC pretty serious. Um, I know, but they, I, I know, I know two athletes in particular that spring to mind who are who have several all stars between them, which basically means they made it to the team of the year several times each, and. One of them never did a single bit of SNC in their lives. Um, and one of them did it, but never did it properly or uh, anyway, seriously. So those two, I would say are becoming rarer now in the game. And I will say one thing about the structure of those two athletes is they both had 
naturally wide shoulders and naturally a narrow pelvis. So that big V shape. And I think those type of athletes probably need less S&C work. Um, so wide, wide shoulders, not like I've just built a big set of delts from doing lateral raises, but wide shoulders and a narrow pelvis. They can pressurize their pelvic floor uh, quicker um, and better, to be honest, in, in a lot of cases. Um, so they probably need less S and C work and they're naturally maybe a little bit bouncy. So that's a, that's a bit of a side parting, but I would look at the structure of athletes as well to see who needs, who maybe needs more and who maybe needs a bit less. I know for me, S and C helps a lot, even basic stuff. Like I just, when I just got stronger, it, it actually stripped off fat on my legs that I didn't think I had. Like my legs were bulkier. And then I started to li- do lower body lifting and actually my legs like halved in size, which is so weird to say because I played sport all my life. I wasn't carrying any weight, but yet my le- legs just stripped half, half in size, became way leaner. And actually like I got like 20% faster in, in about. I don't know about 20%, but I got very, very much, much faster very quickly. Um, so now I don't think too many athletes are going to make it to the top level in Gaelic football or hurling with, without doing a, a decent bit of S&C. But the issue is that leads people then to think athletes to feel like, yeah, this S&C has worked for me. I'm getting to the top level, but they do more and more and more and they end up not staying at the top level too far, too long. So I, I will say that there is a negative transfer of training involved um with S&C as well and if we're being honest one bad one bad training session can ruin an athlete's career and that might sound sensationalist but if you bring an athlete to the gym and you do exercises that makes that locks them up completely at the wrong time in the training cycle and they then go out and tear a hamstring may not because you've done that stuff, but the stuff that you just did had a big impact on their ability for their body to actually distribute force around their body. Or you just really fatigue their hamstring. They tear a hamstring. We all know athletes who have torn a hamstring badly and then never got right again after it or never were as quick as they were again or whatever. So there's a negative transfer of S and C as well. So don't, don't ever forget about that. Also, there's. There's definitely athletes who have done, have, have made, made how they move worse, completely locked up their hips. And maybe that was, maybe that had a big impact on an ACL injury that they had. And they never quite were the same athlete again after that for in, in some cases. So I think SNC will help a lot of athletes get to the top, but SNC is also a lot of the reason when it's done poorly is the reason why athletes don't stay at the top as long. So it's not just one or the other. In basketball, I would say there's examples, countless of examples of countless examples of athletes who, who do it, who don't do almost any serious SNC work and get to the top. No problem. I just think that that sport is so much skill based and then so much genetics, like they're already genetic freaks. And then they're already basically they just did played basketball their whole lives obsessively. And that just developed so much like kind of plyometric ability in their bodies that they, the gym work, 
not that it's not important. It could be important for some of them, but I can see why so many of them probably just disregarded it and got to the top. Um, doesn't mean that they couldn't get further with it, but also maybe they would have been worse with it as well. So, so it really depends on the coach that they have, I think in soccer. So in football, soccer. I would say there's a lot of examples of athletes who got to the top or now are still getting to the top without doing any serious S&C work. I know that's that's changing a little bit, but I think technical and tactical ability is way, way, way more important, depending on the position um, in football. So I would say there's a lot of athletes there who have gotten to the top and will still get to the top without doing any serious S&C work. But again, that that doesn't mean that they couldn't have been better if they did it. Um so yeah, what other sports? I don't really know too much about baseball, hockey, uh, rugby. No, you're not going to get to the top without doing a serious SNC work because you just haven't built that armor where you're actually just strong enough and have the, enough muscle mass to withstand the impact. So no, I would say no one is getting to the top. Almost no one is getting to the top without doing a serious bit of SNC work there. Gaelic, Gaelic football and hurling. It's going to be quite rare. Um, AFL, I don't know too much about, but I would say that's similar to Gaelic football and hurling. You need to be doing your S&C work. Um, soccer, football, it's le- less important, but uh, dep- it depends. It's kind of to and fro in a little bit because there's a lot of smaller, like very technical players playing now. That doesn't mean they're not doing their S&C work seriously, but there's such a such a high value on really technical players now in the game at the moment that physicality, at least in terms of like physical contact is going out of the game a little bit. Uh, so yes, it's possible. Also, it doesn't, it doesn't mean that you should take that route. And also it doesn't mean that SNC, I would say SNC is ending a lot of careers early as well because of poor SNC practices. So, um, ending them early are like, um, making making a career a lot worse in a lot of cases because athletes are overdoing it or it's just being prescribed stuff that is completely crap to be honest um okay last question do you use rpe with rehab clients so rate of perceived exertion so basically like how close to just rating that that set that you just did rated out of 10 so how hard was it out of 10? Was it an 8 out of 10? Was it a 9 out of 10? Was it a 10 out of 10? Um, there's, there's a few parts to this question, by the way. And what to do with beginners who lack awareness of how hard an exercise is? And then second part was, are any other scales or testing that you use in brackets, VBT, isokinetic, etc.? So I use RPE with some clients. Um Biggest one of the biggest things you'll see with like a lot of rehab clients is they won't push close enough to failure because maybe there's just that little bit of fear there. So you need to push them to closer to failure. So you could use like reps in reserve can be can be good. Sometimes RPE can be good. Pain scales. Um, do you use any other like measures? Pain scales can be okay. I tried to stay away from like rate that exercise rate your pain during that exercise out of 10 i tried to stay away from that as most as much as i can sometimes for tendinopathies that can be good so at least like okay it's a it's a it's a three out of ten pain i might i'd probably say okay keep going four out of ten i might say keep going anything that gets too much higher than that i might i might pull it back certainly if it's like an eight out of ten or something i'll pull it back so that's where i might use a pain scale and then the next morning i might use a pain scale as well where i don't really care too much what they say 
unless it's like an eight out of 10 the next day. I just want them to un- to be able to appreciate, okay, because a lot of athletes or a lot of clients will say, then, okay, I woke up and I'm in pain the next day. And actually, if they, if you ask them to grade it, it's only a two out of 10. And actually, if they were being honest with themselves, they would have woken up yesterday morning with a two out of 10 as well, even though they hadn't trained the previous day. So it's still the same pain. It's just that they're hyper conscious that I trained yesterday. How do I feel today? So I'm hyper aware and hyper conscious of how my patellar tendon or my Achilles tendon or my hamstring tendon feels today after I trained yesterday. So I think pain scales can be very valuable there to actually get them to be logical with things and say, okay, but is it any worse than it us- than it would have been if you didn't train? And usually the answer is no, it's not worse. Maybe it's a bit better actually, or maybe it's like a three out of 10, whereas usually it's a two out of 10, in which case we just got a full hard training session in and your pain is hardly even worse at all. So that's where I will use a pain scale. I don't use VBT. I have in the past. Um, weren't really with rehab clients so that was with um more performance work uh isokinetics so like i will send um i will send acl clients to sports surgery clinic in santry and they'll get their they'll get their battery of tests done i think at like four months seven months nine months whatever whatever um whatever they suggest or whatever you want to do and that will have a quad test a hamstring test um maybe a calf one as well um and then they'll also have like biomechanical testing as well so 3d motion analysis tests and stuff like that so i find them very valuable for the athlete at least for for me as well so you can see like okay this uh your your affected side versus your unaffected side there's a 40 percent deficit in quad strength or whatever but to be honest if you're sending an acl client there what are they going to come back and say the what are the tests going to come back and say at four months of after an acl your quad on this side is is has a deficit it's not as strong as the left side does it matter if it's a 20 percent deficit a 30 percent deficit a 40 percent deficit it doesn't matter that much because the answer is okay you just need to train your quad harder so for me it doesn't matter that much but for the athlete it focuses their mind a lot more maybe sometimes where it's like okay i actually need to i actually need to up the intensity and push much harder on this so the tests are value very valuable the same with like if they've got a hamstring graft and it's an acl what is it going to come back their hamstring isn't as strong as it needs to be so the answer is i just need to train that harder if they do drop jumps counter movement tests um they're, they're not going to be jumping as high as the other side and they're not going to be as reactive. So I need to focus on them things. So the tests aren't going to tell you anything that you're, that like, that you're not, that you shouldn't be aware of already. But at the same time, like they can't, they can be valuable to tell you where you're at. And they're definitely valuable for the athlete to keep them motivated and keep them pushing on and, um, just give them a target up ahead to work towards. So that is, um, that is very, very valuable as well. Um, and also to compare to other, other athletes as well. So like at the four month mark, here's the, like you're in the top 1% or you're not in the top 1% of athletes, that type of thing. I might, I might actually try and get Dinny on to talk about our rehab and like, so he did all that testing. It'd be nice to get his point of view on all of that, all of that stuff, um, on his ACL rehab. So, uh, let's, let's, let's maybe do that. Um, okay. On RPE then. Sorry. Yeah. So I will, I will. I will use it if I feel like they don't have 
they are not like pushing anywhere close to failure when I want them to be pushing close to failure. Sometimes they do, sometimes they don't. So I will, I will use it then where it, they actually have to grade it. And then it becomes, they become aware that actually like that's only a five out of 10, if I'm being honest. And like, I need, it's been a five out of 10 for the last three weeks. So actually I need to push this on. I need to get this closer to an eight out of 10. So I, I, I will, I will ask them that if I feel like someone is not, is not pushing hard enough. And just asking the question then is, is going to, they're going to, they're going to, it gives them the answer that they actually need. Not that necessarily that you need, because you're, you know, you know how hard it was like in a ballpark for them. If you're, if you're just using your eyes, but they sometimes need to actually articulate that. So they're being honest with themselves that they're not pushing hard enough. So yes, on that. And then what to do with beginners who, who lack awareness of how hard an exercise is, would you use RPE with them? That's some of the criticism around RPE is beginners, beginners can't like beginners don't have enough awareness to tell you how hard that exercise is was for them. I would say it's, it's maybe even more important for them because awareness and understanding of how hard something was for your body and how close you are to failure type of thing. That's a skill that you need to build in people. And that skill gets built with training. And athletes understand this like very clearly. So if I, if, if I have, if, if I'm poor at estimating my current reality. So where I actually am, where right now, what my body can do. If I'm poor at that, then there's a good chance that that's leading to more injuries and more issues and more niggles. Because if I stand up on the top of a house and I look down and I say, yeah, I could do a drop jump or a depth jump off the top of this house because I'm not aware that actually, hang on. No, I can't. Then like that, 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 sorry, I'm just getting distracted here by something popped up on the computer. That's a, that's a stupid thing. So you need to build this awareness and beginners often don't have that awareness and they overestimate or completely underestimate what they can actually do. So the way of helping them build that awareness, build that skill is not just avoiding like asking and asking them the question or using RPE. It might be more, even more important for them types of people. So they get a better ability to estimate what they can do. So if you put someone under a bench press and they think they can do a one rep max of 120 kilos, but actually it's only 90 kilos, then like they're going to get crushed by that bar. So like they need to, they need to, they need to build that awareness. That is a skill that awareness is a skill. That's the first in the workshops. That's the first skill we talk about awareness and understanding. That means awareness of what's happening within your body, but also awareness of your current reality. What is your situation right now? People will have a flawed reality of where they think they are. They've, they've, been in they've had knee pain for 10 years and they think that they're going to come in and i'm going to rub them uh on their quad this week and next week and they're going to be able to run again that is a flawed reality and that is what's happening in in physio clinics week in week out day in day out around the world people are coming in for with years of pain and they think they're going to be back doing what they want to do with just getting a massage uh three three times in a row and People don't articulate it in that way, but this they're only booking in for three sessions and then they leave or they're booking in one session at a time. They do three sessions and then they say, this didn't work for me. 
um, I'm, I'm leaving. I'm going somewhere else. You're not good enough. So th- their, their current reality or their expect, expectation of where they thought they would be is so flawed that that was never going to work in the first place. They're lacking awareness of what their current reality is, which is you are not strong enough to do the things that you want to do. And you haven't gotten close. You haven't built that up enough. So the, uh, building that awareness is so important. And, and using RPE could be one way of, of doing that with clients. So, um, so yeah, that, that is my answer there. I will use it. I will also use, uh, I won't use VBT. I will also use testing when I need to. I think that's very, very valuable. Um, and I will also use pain scales, particularly with tendinopathies or with someone who just shies away from pain altogether or they, they feel like a bit of pain, um, just means they can't train. You might need to just use a pain scale for a few weeks to teach them that actually your pain isn't getting any worse here. It's just that you're hyper conscious of it the day after you train or the night of your train that you train. So, so, um, so yeah, that's the podcast. Um, and then last thing. We have DGR Interactive. If you're interested in learning more about this stuff, you should actually, if you're interested in the next stuff, go and do Netflix and chill. It's like a 15 or 20 minute class where I talk about the breathing. I talk about the reach. I talk about moving the neck. Um, actually in that next, next section, there's also two, two different exercises on the jaw as well, which I didn't speak about in that answer that maybe I should because the jaw is so important and being able to protract your jaw opens up the airway and a lot of people from that i see they there's no relative motion there so the jaw actually doesn't move everything the skull everything up there just moves as one chunk so being able to restore relative motion there would be really important so there's two videos i think they are on the jaw and then one on the netflix and chill and then i just did a video this week on let me just see i should have these ready don't go anywhere. What did I do? New week, new content. So every Monday we send out an email with this week's content and then last week's content. So this week, what to do when your client is really struggling to get expansion posteriorly. So David looks at a client who struggles with posterior expansion will help you see why this is occurring and give you a couple of strategies to help you improve that. So that was that one. Chris is doing a live class as well. And then last week was pre-strength session breathing work. Um, David discusses two breathing exercises he used to restore posterior expansion and external rotation in the shoulders and the hips uh, with a client in a recent session. So actually the last two weeks have been on breathing work and more posterior expansion, which restores external rotation um, and the ability to yield. So, so yeah, if you want to join, type in DGR Interactive into your phone. Hopefully you got some value, at least from some of them questions. Uh, give it a like, give it a share, all that stuff. And apart from that, I will talk to you guys soon. <laughs>